Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Isaac Quainall, Tom Stewart. Now that KO has 4K, people will see every detail. I better wash my hair. Oh, I'll book in a spray tan. Maybe a manicure? I'm shining up my tats. Experience amazing detail with 4K. Now on KO. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. There's a passage in Johnny Sexton's book where he's talking about the gradual breakdown of his contract negotiations with the IRFU. It begins to dawn on him that, hang on, these guys might actually be willing to let me go here. This mightn't just be brinksmanship, whatever it might be. He says that Tommy Bow used to be the IRFU's favourite player while he was playing for the Ospreys because the Ospreys paid his wages. He still played for Ireland. That kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Maybe they want a few more Tommies, was mm. what uh, was Sexton's thoughts at the time during the... During the uh, diary form of the book uh, kind of flies in the face of the idea that we usually have though that the IRFU want to keep everyone at home yeah so well, we, well it, if they keep them at home then they can do whatever they like with them effectively tell them when they can play how many games they can play but they have to pay them loads of money and that, 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 that's a rather compelling argument you've just made there on we'll chat to Eddie O'Sullivan and Trevor Hogan about that also about how the Irish players might be thinking about the Heineken Cup situation and a little bit about Munster Leinster this Saturday Murph I don't I know you don't even want to talk about Leinster mm. or Munster for that matter no. because it just reminds you of your humiliating crushing and hilarious defeat at the hands of Jerry Fannery last night. 14-0 God he was good win. he was he was fast you know like to be honest a lot of the questions I didn't even know the answer to but I was kind of buzzing backing myself that I would you know, figure out the answer by the time Owen had got to me. I didn't know any of those answers. And Flannery had beaten me to the buzzer anyway. Which is, you know, I mean, I'd like to think I'd back myself in a lot of situations. He got one wrong, Jerry, didn't he? I can't remember what one it was. But there was one that he got correct, which I was quite impressed by because it looked as though he he was asked, he was asked, I asked him if... uh, What he got wrong was... uh, it was naming try scores in the yeah. I got oh to yeah, because he went too early. He didn't know what yeah. match I was talking about, and then I got to complete the match yeah. for Murph's question. No, but he—I uh, asked him about the Rabo wins. How many Celtic leagues have Munster won? He almost got that wrong for a second, and then he got it right. Yeah. For he had to think about it for just a second. Oh, those are very important trophies. I have to say that you know I kind of feel that maybe I've been rumbled. You know, four shows in, yeah. Flannery had a very specific game plan to answer get the it. questions correctly. No, get in there early. Don't ha- don't stand on. I mean, in fairness, he did buzz in, not knowing what game you were going to ask him about. So I mean, I, by the I, way, I, any I, question also, about a Leinster try score, he should really just have said Brian O'Driscoll. If, yeah, if I, mean, I had one word of advice to Jerry Flannery, yeah. listening today, just always answer <laughs> just Brian, O'Driscoll. Brian O'Driscoll. If it's Leinster what Leinster player? Brian O'Driscoll. Brian O'Driscoll. <laughs> Do, I mean, you know, um, the, he also had started one up. Uh, since Colin Cooper turned out to be a better penalty taker than David O'Doherty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Cooper just stepped up, nailed it to uh, Shane Kearns. The look in his eyes, Simon Hick was impressed. He said Cooper was walking in his general direction when he was taking that penalty, placing the ball down, and he was there was no messing. This yeah. guy wanted to score, and oh, he was he did, going yeah. to score. He, he was saying, and yeah. he knows how to strike a football. The David O'Doherty one was interesting because 
he told me in advance of the show that he was going to try that kind of, I don't even know what you call it. It's not even a panenka. It's even more complicated. It was like a sort of a, a roulada. A roulada panenka. Okay. <laughs> Amazingly, uh, well, he told us that he'd been practicing all day, albeit with a spongy football. Yeah. Which is, it tends that to fly through the air. Yeah, that was kind of the problem there. But funny enough, just after the show, I kind of walked off, walked back to the studio areas. It was pretty much emptied out. Almost the last soul left was David O'Doherty. Forlornly. Practicing those penalties and nailing them. I saw him nail one right into the middle, exactly how he tried it. And he was saying that was was a YouTube moment that was missed out on. That reminds me of, you know, a story of Uli. Was it Uli Hernes? It was Uli Hernes. Remember the the actual Penenka penalty shootout? Yeah. The German player who missed, I think, was Uli Hernes in that. And uh, 20 years later, back in the same stadium, um, a reporter watched him go out on the pitch with a ball and smash it repeatedly into the net from the penalty spot. <laughs> this is years afterwards. And then he kind of walks up. This is all by himself. And the reporter's like, were you just... And he's like, yeah, yeah. You remember, sure Pierce did it. You remember the shootout. In- there was nobody there, though. It was yeah. just Uli Hernes, the ball, and oh, the stadium. Just, poor Uli. I wish it had. Sure Pierce did it. Because he, he was, like, for decades, the last German player to miss penalty in a, yeah, yeah, yeah. In a shootout. Was, <laughs> oh, God. Sonia Sullivan, judging by her rationale... Uh, for who she wants where on the good wall she mm. talked didn't get a chance to talk to her much about it on air but off air when she was on a couple of weeks ago she was saying that you have to achieve over a long period of time so I would imagine Sonia would love Tom Brady who we're going to talk about with US Murphy a little bit later on Tom Brady and Bill Belichick still going strong after yeah. many years together and they're unbeaten so far this season and you know the old saying about Gaelic footballers Murph what's the old saying about Gaelic footballers though? you don't know me until you've marked me in an All-Ireland final well Ushie McConville has marked Tomas O'Shea in our final and is going to talk to, about Tomas on I've his I've never actually heard that saying before, but That's I'm going so to unquestioningly there. just follow you on that. Eddie O'Sullivan and Trevor Hogan are ready to go now to talk rugby. Trevor, first of all, thanks for popping into the studio. No problem. Can I ask you, we don't necessarily need to get into the ins and outs of the situation with the Heineken Cup and everything that's going on there, but I'm interested more from a player's point of view. If I was a professional player in Ireland for Leinster, Munster or whoever, I'd be pretty worried at the moment. Yeah, I think so, uh, but you probably won't hear many of the players articulating it in the public. But And a lot of players might have initially not uh, read too much into the details, but I think as time has gone on now, just from... Well, talk, they can't avoid it, I guess. Yeah, yeah, they can't avoid it. And plus, I think people players are probably starting to get a little bit alarmed at what, what's actually in the pipeline. It seems a lot more serious than the 2007 situation. Um but even, you know, it's not just going to be narrowed down to the players. It's really worrying that this this is not just a parochial thing for Irish players. Right? It's, this is affecting everything across Europe or across the Northern Hemisphere in terms of rugby. And it's it's undermining what sport and rugby should be about, is trying to spread the game. And uh, while you can understand the concerns of, of the French and uh, English about the qualification process, surely that's something that can be solved, you know, rather than threatening uh, the whole... Uh, basis on which sport should be about spreading the game getting as many people involved as possible If you're a guy like Sean O'Brien is the prime example at the moment of a person in the position that Johnny Sexton was in last year would you be thinking there's so much doubt around this at least I know if I move to France I'm definitely going to have a really really strong domestic league and I'm going to get well paid would that start entering your head because of course everyone wants to stay and Johnny Sexton wanted to stay at Leinster but you know you have to think of these things I think it might be a factor, all right, but primarily for for someone like Sean, I'd say his big issue would mainly be, number one, 
how many games he's going to have to play if he was to go to France and his own his own uh, physical physical nature picking up injuries that would be a big thing for him to have to try and play like Johnny had to play seven games in six in in six weeks someone like Sean probably couldn't have that luxury to try and put his body in that position I think and and then as well though there will be a concern but I think his agent will will look after that side of things he can't really be worrying about those um, those details but it, it's it's a factor in your in your head all right but. You know, for him, he's probably just going to be focused on, on the practicalities of playing at that level. Yeah. Of Eddie, how worried are you at this stage about the current situation? I think it's pretty ominous, to be honest with you. And I think the uh, the ERC, uh, the governing body of the Heineken Cup, have um, basically blinked now and they're kind of showing the signs of panic. Um, you know, you had the, the CEO of the of Welsh Rugby, Roger Lewis, came out during the week and basically gave you know conceded that the the Celtic nations would have you know live under a meritocracy in other words that there'd be qualification for the Heineken and he also said that you know they could negotiate on the monies which is a big admission from from the Welsh CEO because they are really drowning at the moment trying to keep their head above water financially so ERC have kind of conceded the, the, the two issues that basically triggered the whole um, problem with the Heineken Cup. So they've now conceded that, um, and it seems a touch of panic. And then you had a you know a statement from uh, from Derek McGrath, who's the CEO of, of Heineken Cup. Uh, you know, basically, and I wouldn't go through the whole statement, but it's basically you know rallying the troops and right. you know saying when people see what a fantastic competition we have, everyone will rally around and this will be solved. You know, which is like. You just need violin music in the background, and you, you know, and 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 this thing has turned into a soap opera. You know, it's it's one guy shouting louder or another every day. So I think the ERC are, are beginning to, to to crumble a bit on this. You know, they've they've given up the two issues publicly that that started the whole row, and and it's a bit of me thinks that maybe the Anglo-French uh, block played a very smart card here. You know, they they baited the ERC into, you know, turning down what they wanted in terms of the, the meritocracy and the monies. And uh, now that they've got them in a row, they've now dropped the boom on them and said, well, actually, we're not going to play at all. You know, we've got a, we've got an excuse now to go the whole hog and we're not going to play in Heineken. And I think I think ERC are very worried. Um, I think the problem is, is that, you know, despite all the, 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 the um, low vating from on high, I, I'm not sure the, the French Federation can control the French clubs um, and the RFU can control the English clubs. Um, you know, uh, that is the big problem. And as I always said from the get-go, if the French clubs are serious about this role, it's a, it is a serious role. Eddie, in the meantime, Johnny Sexton has brought out a book, and I don't know if you've had a chance to read it yet at this stage, but he goes into great detail, uh, and he's very frank about his contractual issues with the RFU and how he ended up moving to Paris, sort of against his will, as he, he, well, he didn't mind moving to Paris, but didn't really want to leave Leinster at all. Is that damaging for the IRFU? Do you think that Sexton came out with this? Well, it depends. I mean, there's a romantic notion that we should keep all our players here, and, and it's more than romantic because we know it's worked for us. But the problem we have at the moment in Irish rugby is that the coffers are not as deep as they used to be. The economic um, downturn has, has affected everybody FAI, IRFU, GAA, the whole lot. Plus the fact that um, the, the the ten year tickets has been a bit of a fiasco for the RFU. They, they really struck out on that. Mm-hmm. And they've lost they've lost a lot of money. But all that then is against a French market, a French rugby market that's been skewed out of all proportion, where the money's on the table are colossal. So the the problem for the RFU is, and, and there's no doubt they would have wanted to keep Johnny. And 
not don't want to get into the twos and pros of who said or what was said and how it was handled. The bottom line was, if if the RFU uh, met uh, a player like Jonathan Sexton at the top of the market, like the French clubs are, what they do is they set a benchmark. So then Sean O'Brien has to be met at that benchmark. So, so does Jamie Heaslip. So does any marquee player. And the problem at the moment is there's so many good rugby players in Ireland. That there are a lot of marquee players that French clubs would like to have. Although I think Sexton's argument, Eddie, was that he wasn't looking for a new benchmark. He was just looking to reach the benchmark that was already there. Well, I don't I don't know the ins and outs of it. Yeah. And it's, it's he said, she said. But I can't imagine the IRFU offered him less than he was on. They obviously were offering him more than he was on. But the bottom line is they didn't offer him enough to keep him here. And and that's 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 negotiations, you know. I mean, <laughs> negotiations. You 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 never get what you deserve. You only get what you negotiate. And obviously, the RFU couldn't put enough money on the table, or wouldn't put enough money on the table, whatever you want to put it, to to keep Jonathan Sexton here. And I think their big fear was if they did that, they were opening up the possibility of other players looking for the same amounts of money, and they can't probably can't afford it, or they would say they can't afford it. So that's the nub of it, and it's basically. And I think this is not the first one. I think Jonathan Sexton is the first of it. And I plug on my blog, I did a piece in it called, like, I think the wild geese are going to be on their way again, you know? Because I don't know if the, if the RFU really anymore, and they were in front of the market. If you go back five or six years, Irish players were probably being paid above the odds because we, we had the finances in Ireland and the game was going very well. No, that's a different landscape. So I, I, you can be, you can get kind of emotional about it and romantic about it, but the bottom line is, the art of view is there's no point in our view writing checks that can't cash. And, and and I think that's where they're looking at from is the whole harsh reality of now having to borrow twenty four million to keep the game on track here in this country. I think the problem is, though, is, is they did offer enough in the end, but it was way too late. And this traditional notion of haggling where you come in with a low offer and then you'll meet somewhere in between, that doesn't really work when it comes to someone like, you know, our top players like Johnny Sexton. And hopefully they learned that with, with Sean O'Brien. They came in with an offer initially for Johnny that was, was below what the best played player in Ireland was. And that's... You know, whatever the circumstance of economic climate, for for the player involved and Johnny especially, he would have taken that as that's you're not being um, res- your value is not being respected and acknowledged. So it was a bit of an insult, and that's what kind of discussion on the the, the 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 basically the tactics of negotiations. And you can argue the toss that the RFU came in too low, or that they 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 kind of um, he was offended by the first offer. But like at the end of the day. Um, you know, they either had the money to keep him or they didn't have to keep him. Or or the whole thing was badly managed between the RFU and his agent. That there was some, like, if he said at the end of the day, like, oh, if I got this offer, I wouldn't have gone. How the RFU didn't know that was going to keep him here is a mystery to me because that's what negotiation is all about. So we, I think the bigger picture is, and, and you can dice an me you want, is I don't believe the RFU have the financial clout to compete with the French clubs. So what it means is Irish players are going to have to take a financial hit to stay here. They're not going to get them, their market value in France. And at the end of the day, the RFU probably drew a line in the sand with Jonathan Sexton. Whether it's right or wrong, I'm, I'm not judging people here. I'm just saying how this played out. And I can sympathise with Jonathan Sexton. The guy is every entitlement to go. He, rugby's a short career. He can earn whatever he wants, as much as he wants, in the time he has. But also the RFU on the other side of it are going to say, look, we, there's more than one Jonathan Sexton here. So if we if we push the boat out too far from one guy, well, all the other guys are going to drown. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's an ongoing discussion. And I I, I, I don't want to be laying blame on anybody's feet because I think it's it's not as simple as 
he's a great player. We have to find a way to pay him. There's a bigger picture there. I do want to get on to the game itself. Eddie, just one last word on Sexton, though. He suggested in his book that it might actually suit the IRFU to have him off their books. You know, they wouldn't be paying him, but he still plays for Ireland. Are we being a bit too cynical on the matter, or is that the truth of it? Yes. It's a kind of a cynical view, maybe. Oh, yeah, we co- it'll cost us less if we let him go off, go off and we just have to pay him for his appearance money for the Irish team. But they know bloody well the risk involved in that is huge. That if Johnny gets hurt down in, in, uh, over in Paris or playing in France, it could cost the IRFU an awful lot more money. But there's nothing you can do with it. That's just rolling the dice of it. I just hope, though, with whatever all is said and done, that they learn the lessons on both sides, that they come out with an offer straight up and be honest with players, especially our, our top-end players. It's not like you're selling a gate or a rug that you, you come in halfway. Let's just come up with the, the offer straight up and be honest with the players straight up from well, the off. rather than. OK, yeah, no, I do, want to, I do want to move it on, guys, because we, <laughs> we, we had intended to chat about this match at the weekend at some point. Yeah. Trevor... Uh, where are Leinster at coming into this one, given the players they lost over the summer, given the new management coming in? But, you know, there's no less expectation on them, I wouldn't have thought, than there is every other year. What, what, do, we, do we only know after they play Munster early season where they are? Probably a better indication, obviously, after Munster. But I still, it's, it's fair enough to say already they're looking fairly coherent, fairly, fairly structured, similar to last year in attack. Definitely, they're they're looking fairly rootless in in, in uh, when they get the opportunities. They're very resilient. They'll take absorb the pressure and score when they need to, and, and up that intensity. They'll change direction from from own Redden and Boss very well. They'll identify. We've got really strong ball carriers, and the likes of Jack McRae coming through now as well. Really, and Jordy Murphy, really strong in, in terms of attack. The one change that's pretty noticeable is in terms of defence. They're, 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 I think uh, Matt O'Connor really pushing hard for a really strong line speed, and I think he's changed it from defending to from an, uh, an inside out, which is kind of standard defence, and working from the inside. Now he's looking at from the outside in. So Leinster in the last few weeks are still kind of getting to adjusting to that. They're getting beaten a little bit on the inside. Some lads are really rushing up hard. Suits the lights of O'Driscoll and, and, and other lads, but it might take a while for 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 lads to get used to. But other than that, I think Leinster are still look really like a strong force and a serious serious contender be top of Europe you know Is that just relentless training that that gets you to the pitch of that sort of defensive system? Um, I'd say it's just a, yeah a habit players like it would be, be it's weird because you're always you know you're in you've, from from the inception of bringing in strong defence it's always about you defend from the inside you never get beaten on the inside whereas this is a complete <laughs> mind, mindset change to say I'm coming up hard and I've got I'm, go- I'm looking after the outside first to, to, to change that that wouldn't happen overnight it would suit someone like, like O'Driscoll saying, but other lads why does it suit O'Driscoll? because he comes up so hard anyway in defence and he's in a 13 channel that's the kind of role you're looking at there whereas for the front five guys to be thinking in terms of really coming up hard and not to be conscious of their inside first it's a real mindset change um it's definitely improving in the last, but I still even last weekend they were beaten on the inside a couple of times. The lads coming up hard and not being conscious, you know, of coming up together. Eddie, will I get that right? Do you think? Yeah, I think Trevor's right. I don't see too much difference between Leinster from this year and last year in terms of the ball and and the, the system Joe Schmidt developed, a kind of a three rock rotation and and kind of open ended play, uh, seems to work for Leinster. The players are comfortable, so I think. Matt O'Connor might have changed a lot of cards, and he made a tinker here and there with it, but it's not, it's, it's not changed that much. And why would you change it? It's worked very well from, um, they, they, they understand the system and they're very good at holding onto the ball through multiple phases and kind of waiting, baiting you to make a mistake or getting a mismatch and then they skin you. So they can hold onto the ball 
as we saw last year, it took 20-odd phases to score against Munster to win the game down in Thomond Park. But I think, yeah, the defence has changed. And, and Trevor is right. You know, the difference between up and out and up and in is more than two words, you know. It's absolutely complete change in your mindset. And fellas don't get comfortable with that for a while. But then again, you know, if, at this level of the game, I don't think you can use the same defence system every week because what happens is people pick it apart. If you become predictable in anything, people pick it apart. So it'll be interesting to see how Munster attack Leinster. I mean, the one thing you can't do with Leinster, and it's very hard to do, is to get around the Leinster team. There's too much pace. There's too many smart defenders, and they're the best defender in the world at 13. So getting around Leinster and scoring on the corner is very hard. And last year, the, the, try that they, the two tries they got in, in, in Limerick earlier, so earlier this year in, in the same fixture... One was a turnover where Conor Murray got down a short side and put in Keatley. But the other try, Bernard Driscoll got obstructed blatantly by James Downey and he got away with it. But where Leinster have had an Achilles heel, and maybe this is why uh, Matt O'Connor is trying to, trying to solve it, is Leinster, even for the last couple of years, have been very, very vulnerable if you go up the guts against them. They've struggled with picking jams. And, and even last year, like if you in, in the Amlin uh, game, uh, against uh, Stade Francais, I was at it, and Stade Francais killed them in the bacon jam. But every time they moved it wide, Leinster turned them over. But the irony now is that Munster are trying to play a wide game. So how do Munster get the ball wide if Leinster are cutting them off? At the same time, even if they get it wide, Leinster had the capacity to turn you over out wide. So maybe Munster have to rethink their strategy and go more route one, which is the big discussion on Munster. Should they? spend more time going route one and less time going to the corners or going wide. So it's an intriguing battle from that perspective. You know, when you when you stand back and see what are the two coaches thinking, what's Matt O'Connor thinking, you know, what what's Rob Penny thinking, how will they go after each other in in the early stages to test who's doing what. There'll be a fair bit of shadow boxing. But I, I'm looking forward to that whole dimension as will Munster try and play this wide game against a team who punish you when you play a wide game, or will they go up the guts, which is not what they really want to do uh, against a team more vulnerable up the guts, but then the Leinster coach is trying to stop that vulnerability by playing an up and in and, and defending up, defending around the breakdown and inside the, 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 the corners. So to me, that, that's, the, that's the real thing I want to watch for on, on, yeah. on uh, Saturday. Trevor, I remember interviewing Rob Penny last year and putting that a line of question along those lines to him about the traditional Munster way sort of versus what he's trying to bring in and he took a little bit of umbrage at it because he was making the point that look you know this the the, the wide thing that we're doing here it was it's not just a case that you know we're, we we go wide for half and then suddenly we go old school Munster or whatever he says that part of the strategy of going wide so often and, and so early is to run the legs off the opposition and that then allows you to do the other stuff that, that Munster may be more associated with do you think they have got to the pitch of what he's been trying to do with them? Yeah, I think they're... Sorry, I'm just going to ask Trevor that one. Okay, sorry, yeah. Sorry, just, sorry, yeah. They would just look a lot more comfortable doing that now. And I think, yeah, last year they had to really do it so often so as to get the players comfortable in those scenarios. Um, I, I think that that strategy, though, of saying we're going to do it for the first 20 and then and that that's grand, but it, it's become so predictable that Lens, uh, teams are easily able to defend against that. If Munster do that from the outset, which I don't think they, they are doing, what they'll do is recognise when it's on and recognise when it's not on. A lot of the times this season, they're, they're, they're recognising if teams are coming up hard against them and they're expecting the Munster to go wide, you just have to put the little grubber in or you do a lot of the cross kicks, which Munster are relying on heavily. There's no mutually exclusive way that this is the way Munster... Because if you, if you play like that, it's going to be so... Like Eddie was saying, it's so predictable. It's 
easy to defend against. So they'll have to recognise what way Leinster are defending, what way they can attack that way. And like I can see why Rob would say would get offended because there is the monster traditional way doesn't exclude players being able I'd to say, yeah, recognise what's I'd say he gets offended because he probably hears it all the time. Yeah. Like, that's not the Munster way, you know, yeah. as I kind of probably said to him as well. No, but it's, it's, a, fair, it's a fair enough point because I think at one stage Munster were playing fairly predictable early on in the, in the, in the league, but they then they, they adapted and they used it when it's on and when it's not on because you, can never be, you should never be able to be pigeonholed and say this is how one team plays. You know, you have to be able to identify the weaknesses in the opposition. Okay, just predictions before we wrap up, Eddie, who do you think is going to win? Um, you know, I hate to say it, but I think like if you look at the last two fixtures last year, Leinster won both fixtures, um, and I have a feeling they could they could tip in their favour. But it might come down to a simple thing like um, the refereeing interpretation of the scrum or the interpretation of the rock. But what killed Munster last last uh, April in Thorn Park is they gave away too many kickable penalties, uh, and that's really what did them in the end. So I still feel uh, Leinster have a shot here. Um, you know, I, I I I think they could sneak it, and if they do, it'll be as I said, a huge okay. a huge step forward. But I, and I'm always ready to, to not to back Munster. But, so I'm I'm dancing a bit here. But a draw, a draw, Yeah, well, if you ask me to form, so you know, call it, I'd say. Yeah, Leinster by a smidgen, you know. Trevor, um, I think the, the big factor is the the venue, and the, it's interesting that it's in Thorne Park for the for the first time in a few years, the first time round this season. So um, that the Thorne thing is huge because Munster lift their intensity usually from Musgrave, and you'll have O'Connell and, and Dunica Ryan coming back in there. I can see uh, I can see Munster probably just nicking at the intensity on, on, on that intensity level and the ground alone, but Mon- Leinster will will. Uh, won't, it'll be very close okay that's great stuff close uh, one way or the other Eddie thank you Trevor thanks so much right, thanks Thanks very much that's the question that's going to be asked answer tonight tonight so now come here tonight tonight into Wexford Park and they just must produce the goods tonight tonight their team is better set up tonight tonight but they just the bottom line is Michael they have to do tonight tonight second captains football Available on irishtimes.com, second captains, and iTunes from 6 p.m. tonight. Tonight, 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 tonight. Pretty interesting description of the way Leinster are trying to defend now and how Brian O'Driscoll, it should suit O'Driscoll, uh, who actually played ridiculously well against Cardiff last week against a few of those Welsh Lions players. Jonathan Davies not among them, but there might have still been a little bit of O'Driscoll. Mm. I'm going to go back to the Sexton book again, lads, if you don't mind. Well, why not? I, I really am. He talks about the do you remember the Six Nations game last year when Ireland destroyed Wales in the yep. first half and almost got reeled in, but O'Driscoll had one of his ridiculously good games and made a bit of a food out of Jamie Robertson and Jonathan Davies. Sexton said before that game, he was looking at O'Driscoll and going, Oh yes, yes. <laughs> this guy's in the mood. He's fired up. He's going to go out there and he's going to destroy Wales because Gatlin's watching. He's playing he's been dropped as captain. And he's playing against these Welsh guys yeah. who might want his place. But it's just funny. It's just, I don't know if O'Driscoll had to say it was as fired up for this most recent one, but it sounds kind of fun watching Brian O'Driscoll in that state. Yeah. A close personal friend of yours, Murph, so you probably Of course. Uh, you know, it was kind of, kind of quite similar when we were filming as well. I just, a look came into his eyes and just said, he just, he turned to me and he said, Murph, let's nail this. Yeah. Do you have the feeling we're never going to hear the end of Murph no, you filming with Brian O'Driscoll? You, you, could, you could sense the respect, the, you could sense the level of respect yeah. that there was. Listen, there's a lot of mutual respect there. It's not just Brian's respect for me. There's yeah. a little Brian bit O'Driscoll has well. already forgotten about, if you ask Brian O'Driscoll what did he do yesterday, I bet you he's forgotten that he filmed that. <laughs> Thanks, Keen. <laughs> See you soon, man. Thanks, Keen.
All right, let's get into U.S. Murph. Now, we chatted to him just after the weekend. New England Patriots had won again, so decent time to catch up with him. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game, no matter who wins or loses. I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behavior. You're being extremely truculent. Whatever truculent means, if that's good, I'm there. Strike three called, and the Giants have won the World Series. Brian, great to talk as always. You're keeping well, I hope. All is good, Owen. Uh, it is the end, of course, of baseball season. We're going into October, which has um, huge baseball implications. But I know you guys, I always try to get a little plug in there for my baseball. I know you guys are a little bit more NFL-centric, and that's cool, too, because with the first month in the books, we're starting to uh, we're starting to see some stories emerge. So yeah, all is good here in San Francisco. I'll tell you what, Brian, you've been so good to us over the years. We'll let you explain the permutations in the baseball before we get into our NFL chat. What's going on? What's what's how's it shaping up? We're in October. October is the magical month for baseball fans because that's when the uh, you know oh, that's when the playoffs are held. That's when the World Series champion is crowned. So uh, just the word October is always like a magical thing. On the East Coast, you get those colder nights and the, and, the, and the colors of the leaves change. It gets real romantic. Out here on the West Coast, not so much. We actually have kind of a steady climate year-round, so we don't get to play that magical, uh, oh, as the leaves fall at Fenway Park kind of uh, card. But some good stuff on tap, guys. The Red Sox are going for the World Series in their bounce-back year. They're a good team. The Oakland A's, Moneyball 2. Uh, the low-budget A's have a chance to win the World Series. And the National League, the St. Louis Cardinals are – really proving to be one of the most enduring franchises in North American sports. They're back in it again. The Los Angeles Dodgers, my hated rival of the Giants, they're in it. They're back in business, and they have a bunch of stars on their team, and Magic Johnson owns them. So there's a great number of teams jockeying. Oh, and I'll be sure to keep you apprised as the month goes on. How's the Magic Johnson ownership going? Quite well, it sounds. Unfortunately, it's going quite well. Yeah, this is a really disappointing development for me as a Giants fan. Uh, he's not the money guy. They, have a, they were bought by a billionaire, that's a billion with a B, billionaire out of Chicago named Mark Guggenheim, and this guy has more money than God, and he's willing to spend it. You get a lot of rich owners in sports, and they're not necessarily willing to spend it. This guy said, I'm coming to make the Dodgers great again, and he has blown all preconceived notions of what a payroll is. They have so many stars on their team because he just keeps signing huge name after huge name. They're sort of playing almost on an unfair playing field, but you got to try to beat them, and they're human beings. They can fail, so you know I hope they do fail. But with Magic as the PR guy out front and the money guy behind them, it is good times in Dodgerland. And that's, of course, a storied franchise, Jackie Robinson. And they have a broadcaster named Vin Scully who's 86 years old, and he's still calling baseball games. He is one of the most revered figures in the history of baseball, too. So I hate to admit that the Dodgers have a great tradition, and I'm hoping they lose in the playoffs. How's that? <laughs> nice and spiteful there, Brian. Listen, you, we will talk NFL now. You mentioned the Red Sox are going well. Boston sport might be about to gain preeminence again there because the, uh, the New England Patriots have started this season like a house on fire. 
Well, yeah, you say Boston sport, and that made me remind me that uh, NBA training camps are underway, and you know who's going to be awful is the Boston Celtics because okay. they traded everybody, right? Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett are gone. Doc Rivers is gone. So, yeah, uh, with no Celtics to look forward to, here they are again, the New England Patriots, 4-0, and owned for the first time since 2007 when they went undefeated. Don't forget, right? Uh, and so, uh, you know, here they are, and it's like, are you kidding me? It's like almost like a time warp, Tom Brady and Bill Belichick, and all the other names change around them. And the big story on the Patriots this year is that, first of all, their star tight end, Aaron Hernandez, is now one of the most notorious uh, accused murderers in the history of American sports. He awaits his trial, and that was a huge blow to the Patriots' uh, you know, image and pride, and not to mention their ability to score touchdowns. Their other guy, Rob Gronkowski, famously known as Gronk, who's that incredibly athletic, freakish tight end, who's also a total knucklehead. He's one of these guys who's known for his, his interviews. It's like interviewing, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the movie Fast Times at Ridgemont High, but he's like a Jeff Spicoli type of intellect, just like kind of this surfer dude who's like, hey, dude, what's up? And he's like, the guy seems like he's got a box of rocks in his head, but he's one of the great physical talents. He's been hurt all year, too. He's out with a bad back. And then finally, they uh, go ahead and sign this little receiver. They lose Wes Welker, their star receiver, to the Denver Broncos, where he and Peyton Manning are making beautiful music together. So they sign this little guy named Danny Amendola, out of uh, the St. Louis Rams, who's, who's kind of a Wes Welker type, this little undersized guy. You put him in the slot against linebackers, and he catches balls all day. He gets hurt, too, so he's out. So the story is Tom Brady has nothing. He has no receivers owned to throw to, and, and it, it was getting frustrating for him. Uh, the last couple of weeks he's been caught on camera berating his receivers, uh, showing great anger towards them, these no-name kids that are out there. He's actually gotten knocked a little bit, too, by some of the football analysts and pundits saying, you know, he should be showing better form than that. He shouldn't be showing up these kids. He should be more of a leader. Well, guess what? He's making these kids perform because uh, on Sunday night in Atlanta against a good Atlanta Falcons team on the road, they won 30-23, to and they're 4-0, and and we're right back to just dealing with the Patriots all over again. Brian, out of those two guys, Tom Brady and Bill Belichick, who I believe arrived at the same time. I think Belichick came in and drafted Brady pretty early on. Who has been the more important figure? Or maybe the question is, who could the Patriots afford to do without if one of them was to leave in the morning? Well, that's a great question. That really is a good question, and you could, and you could argue either side. I, I, if I said Bill Belichick is more important, it would be because there was a year in which Bill, uh, Tom Brady was gone. He missed... Um, he he he, he uh, was injured in the first week of the season, and they brought in this no-name backup named Matt Castle, and he was you know it was viewed that the season was lost, and instead Matt Castle and the Patriots had an excellent year that year. Now I think they missed the playoffs by one game, but they still were a winning team that year. So with Tom Brady out, they still did have a winning season, and Matt Castle had an amazing season of passing numbers. But if I was also to tell you that Tom Brady was more important, I could argue that you know they didn't even make the playoffs that year that he was gone, and that if you honest to goodness were honest with yourself and, and took Brady out of the equation, the Patriots might be not just not a 4-0 and team, but they might be a really average to sub-average team. It shows you the importance of quarterbacks now in this day and age, the way the rules have changed to protect quarterbacks, 
that they can't get hit, so injuries are much less likely. And receivers now are basically letting – they're allowing receivers to basically run free in the secondary anymore. They're outlawing those hits on defenseless receivers. They're calling these helmet-to-helmet hits when they're anywhere close to helmets. So passing numbers are through the roof. We've discussed that before. Uh, and so you could say that Brady, uh, as, as the guy who's total command of that team – is more important, but it's a heck of a question. It's kind of a question you can apply to almost any real situation in sports. Like, I think back to the 80s and the 49ers. Bill, who was more important, Bill Walsh or Joe Montana? Wow. Well, you can make an argument on either one. Now, like Bill Belichick's fingerprints are all over the defense. You know, if, if the Patriots are having a good defensive game and, and stop a guy like Matt Ryan and the Atlanta Falcons like they did on Sunday night, that's a Bill Belichick game plan. I mean, uh, when, they, when they beat Tampa Bay 23-3 to in Week 3, that's Bill Belichick's defense doing it. So Belichick is more of an overall influence, but Tom Brady is, you know, remains one of the greatest quarterbacks we've ever seen. So they are the two enduring people. You know, it's a 53-man roster, but really in New England, it's like a two-man roster. Do you mind if I throw a third man into that roster just to confuse matters? Robert Kraft, the owner, how important is he in this whole thing? <laughs> Well, definitely, because he's, he hasn't screwed up. You know, what owners can do is they can screw it up. You know, they, you see owners mess with things. Like Mark Cuban of the Dallas Mavericks would be a guy who's perceived as mess. Now, the Mavericks won a championship, finally, but he also might have gotten in the way of some other ones. Um, or you have uh, a case out here, like with the 49ers, after Eddie DeBartolo, John York took over, and he was not a leader at all. He didn't know how to ha- hire a general manager. They had a guy named Terry Donnie who was a bad general manager. He didn't identify him as a skilled general manager and all that. So there's something sometimes owners, when owners don't interfere, that makes them a great owner. So what Bob Kraft has done is just kind of what Eddie DeBartolo did with the 49ers in the, in the 80s, and that is if I have a great coach, I'm going to leave him alone. Although it's kind of funny, stories about DeBartolo lashing out at Walsh after losses are legend. You don't really get that with Bob Kraft. I have Bill Belichick. I'm not going to mess with him. I'm not going to make him unhappy. I have Tom Brady. I'm going to make him as rich as he wants to be. I'm going to get a new stadium that's built that creates this luxury sweet money that allows us to continue to have enough money to sign guaranteed bonuses. And I'm going to trust Belichick to draft guys like Aaron Hernandez and Rob Gronkowski. Now I say Hernandez course it wound up being a bad draft pick but he was a talented player or sign Vince Wilfork the big defensive tackle a great free agent who sadly actually was injured badly in Sunday night's game and that might affect the Patriots going forward but yeah so the same way I mean I you know I always draw the analogy back to the 49ers DeBartolo owner Walsh coach Montana quarterback without question the parallel to the 2000s is Kraft owner Belichick coach Brady quarterback Belichick has had his issues, I guess, in terms of media persona and uh, that that element of it over the years. Are they an unpopular team? Brady seems to be a popular enough figure, I, I guess. Would they w- Were they to come and win? Because they haven't won a Super Bowl in a long time for all the consistency that they've had. Were they to go and win it this year, would they be popular Super Bowl champions, you think? Uh, they're a bit divisive. Uh, in, in Boston, you know, Boston teams in general, because they have such a great fan base, sometimes that fan base can be a little too in your face, you know, and you guys can think of the same analogy in GAA. I'm sure there's certain fan bases that you're like, oh, these guys again, oh my God, you know, and we don't have to name names. You can name the names, but uh, that's what the Patriots kind of are. Uh, the Red Sox are that way. They come around to every baseball stadium and their fans outnumber the home team, you know. So you have to give them credit. They're great fans. But no, the answer to your question is Bill Belichick does not engender warm feelings. For example, 
the Baltimore Ravens won the Super Bowl last year, and I think most people felt like their quarterback or their coach, John Harbaugh, was a very likable guy. We've talked about Jim Harbaugh on this show a number of times. I think most of America was rooting for John Harbaugh and the Ravens to beat Jim Harbaugh and the 49ers because John Harbaugh is a warmer, uh, more easier guy to, to connect with. Belichick has no interest in connecting with you on a human level. He has none, none at all. I think Brady is deeply admired, and there's really nothing to dislike about Tom Brady. He is viewed as uh, you know, the, the Joe Montana, as I said, of the modern era, and that's fantastic. But Belichick is a problem. Belichick is a hard guy to want to see win. So, yeah, the answer is if they were in a Super Bowl, it's likely that most of America would be pulling for the other team. How close are they to really hitting the heights this year, Brian? They're unbeaten. Have they had an easy start, and what's next? Well, you know, here in the NFL anymore, Owen, it is like, it's hard to make sense because parity has truly arrived. And other than the Jacksonville Jaguars, who are an absolute atrocity, uh, in the New York Giants, who have turned out to be an atrocity too at 0 4, any team is out there. So, 4 0 teams right now are the Denver Broncos, who are the runaway story of the year. Peyton Manning, two years ago, was thought to be done with football is now actually playing the best football of his career, and they're setting all kinds of records. So they would be, number one, your team. Uh, right behind them, though, would be New England at 4-0, and and then in the AFC there's another 4-0 team, and that's the Kansas City Chiefs, who, oh, by the way, took our reject quarterback from San Francisco, Alex Smith, who was bounced for Colin Kaepernick, and he's 4-0 <laughs> to start the year out there. And there's some people in San Francisco, because Kaepernick's lost two games this year, saying, wait, 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 did we get rid of the wrong guy? And so that's out there. In the NFC, the Seattle Seahawks at 4-0 continue to impress. Stunning comeback win for them on the road, down 20-3. to The story on the Seahawks is, at home, they are the best team in the NFL. They'll beat anybody. They beat Tom Brady and the Patriots. They've killed Jim Harbaugh twice. But on the road, they're a very different team. They don't have that, that loud home field advantage. And they're seen as very ordinary on the road. And when they were losing 20-3 to to Houston at halftime yesterday, well, everybody in San Francisco said, yeah, exactly, because the Seahawks aren't as good as you think they are, and they're going to lose on the road, and the 49ers can climb right back into the NFC West. Well, guess what? The Seahawks rallied and won that game 23-20 in OT. Uh, yeah, the, the Patriots are on that short list there. Denver, Kansas City, New England, Seattle, those are your teams. And the Pats are right there again. Ryan, I would ha- I'm going to put words in your mouth here and guess that you are not one of those people pining for Alex Smith. No, you know my man crush on Colin yeah. Kaepernick is in, uh, you know, that's kind of, a, um, kind of a well-known thing. I love that kid. So uh, I'm sticking with him. I liked Alex, and I do wish him well. He was an incredibly nice guy when he was here. He drove in the Giants World Series parade down Market Street in San Francisco. He drove one of the cars, you know. He's always been a very uh, uh, likable guy. But we have a, a, a film expert on our show named Greg Cosell. He works for NFL Films. And when, when I brought up the idea that some people were pining for Alex Smith, he, la- he interrupted my question with laughter. And he said, there's not a single person in the entire NFL world who would take Alex Smith over Colin Kaepernick. So he works at NFL Films. He studies the films. So I'll go with that. Yeah, sounds good. Brian, brilliant as ever. Thank you. All the best, Owen. Kenny, you, uh, I'm going to put the same question to you that I put to Brian there. Who is the most important member of the New England Patriots franchise? Is it Bill Belichick, coach? Tom Brady? Bill Belichick is a cheater. <laughs> Tom Brady, quarterback? Or Robert Kraft, Vladimir Putin's best friend? Yeah, he's... Not actually friends. I think he didn't Putin steal his Super Bowl his rig. Super Bowl rig, yeah. So he told a story about that, yeah. Or like he, Putin asked him, can I try that on? And Kraft gave him... I mean, he's got a few of these rings. And gave him the ring. And... And then Putin just walked away. Yeah, he just put it on and walked away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't know if that's really true. Uh, I th- I've no doubt. Uh, cool. No, I think, I think um, 
I think it's Tom Brady out. Brady's your man? Yeah. What does Brady do for the defence? Well, I suppose he scores loads of points so that the defence... He wins the job a little easier. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He keeps the defence off the field entirely for a large portion <laughs> of the game. Then gets points at the end of his constant things. touchdown scoring. Yeah, I'd say, I'd say the player... Um, I mean, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of rich owners in the NFL. You know, it's, it's what's so amazing about Bob Kraft that makes him so awesome compared to... He's managed to hold on to Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. The circle goes round and round, Ken. Who knows... Uh, the the real answer to this to this question, it's you know, if Bob Kraft in, takes yeah. his eyes off the ball, lets Tom Brady leave, then then you've got yourself a problem, haven't you? And he's a, he's able to do that. He's capable of losing Tom Brady. You're so right. Coming up at six o'clock tonight. That's yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. Second captain's football again. Talking to David Moyes. Yeah, we're going to talk to Richie Sadler about uh, David Moyes, and uh, we'll we'll be talking a good bit about Alex Ferguson as well. Give quite an interesting interview, you know, to Charlie Rose. That's the that's the kind of level he's at these days. Um, you know, international. Uh, sort of politicians and so you know it's Kanye West, Barack Obama, and Alex Ferguson are sort of the that's, three. That's a hell of a dinner party. Yeah, uh, he and he and he's talked to talked to Charlie. We'll we'll look at some issues rising like that. And also Joe Hart, doesn't he look great? I mean, he's such a big, tall, strapping lad. Shoulders well back, lovely posture. A leader. Oh, he looks fantastic. I mean, a ball flashing past him. Uh, repeatedly, he doesn't seem to be able to get down. But he looks really—he fills the goal mouth well, doesn't he? He We're gives gonna, the impression of a great goalkeeper. He does. He looks like a great he should goalkeeper. be a fine goalkeeper. We're going to talk about him a bit. Just got a few minutes left to talk about the retirement of Tommaso O'Shea and just how good a player, how big a player he's been in getting football for the last what are we talking? Fifteen, 15 years. years. So it's yeah, <laughs> pretty impressive in and of itself. But Ushi McConville joins us now. She actually marked Tommaso O'Shea in the 2002 Ireland final, played against him. In some massive games, Oshin, good to talk to you. First question is just how highly would you rate Tomas? Yeah, rate him right up there. I'd say I always thought that uh, Seamus Miner was probably you know the toughest player I, I marked because of pure physicality. Uh, probably put Tomas second or third in that, in that because one thing about Tomas was that uh, I I sometimes felt as if I was marking him rather than uh, him marking me because. Uh, Every opportunity he got, he broke up the field, and the quality he had was unbelievable. Because it almost felt like every single time he went up the field, he did something positive with the ball, or as he just kicked the thing over the bar and come running back up the field. Like, and uh, people sort of questioned his engine and stuff this year, but I thought you know he was unbelievable against the Dubs. He was very very good against Cork and. Uh, he, he, it wasn't as if you know. I I thought that he he'd win. Then I thought he'd give it another couple of years. So, um, but when I you know when I was at my peak, I suppose, and he was at his peak. I mean, he was you know yeah. phenomenal. He had a phenomenal engine. And he was up and down that field. He was an absolute nightmare. I hated marking <laughs> boys that went up and down the field like that. But a lot of the players I would have played against went up and down the field, but just didn't have that bit of quality at the end so they weren't punishing you all the time but every time you let him go he'd punish you like. yeah it strikes me watching him over the, the sport has changed an awful lot from the time he started playing 
in the late nineties, his league debut for Kerry to now. It's it's a very different kind of a sport in a lot of ways. But I don't know. Is he kind of a, one of those timeless sort of players? He hasn't necessarily changed a huge amount. He he still was doing at the end of his career what he was doing at the start of the career. And when you have that sort of quality, that's that's what you need. Yeah, exactly. And and he has he not only has that quality, but I think he always had that belief, that huge belief in himself that. Every day he went out that he was going to perform, and I think you know that sometimes what separates the sort of the good players from the great players. And there's no doubt the Monster was an absolutely great player. And I think you're right. I think you know he just uh, he had a way of playing football. He believed in it, and uh, he never really wavered from that. He never really changed. Uh, to be honest, one of the one of his best performances I seen was he played against Tyrone in the league this year, and the first 35 minutes. I'm not sure if Tyrone left him uh, free for the whole 35 minutes, but certainly for about 20 minutes of that, he looked as if he just had the space of, of Oma, and he just absolutely run the show. And the funny thing about it was he run it in a Gooch-like fashion. As well as getting up and down the field, he's able to pick passes. He's very good at giving and going and uh, creating that little bit of space for himself and space for others. And when he makes those runs, he, he doesn't necessarily have to get the ball all the time, but... He was very selective in, in the way he made those runs and how far he went at different stages. I just thought, when I watched him uh, in the league this year against him, I thought, you know, there's a player who, you know, was doing it now for 15 years, and there isn't that many players anymore who are able to, to sustain that for 15 years. He has, and he, he basically is timeless, and, and it, it, you often hear about players who've gone on to play at the 35, 36, and they've had to adapt and change their game, but I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, he didn't. He just he was relentless in the fact that you know that was the way he played football, and he believed in that, and that's the way he went out. It's not necessarily a surprise, Oshin, that he's retired, given at the age he is. That albeit he, he's still playing quite extremely well, I think uh, you'd probably say. But the effect that this has now on Kerry, Amy Fitzmaurice would have known these things were going to happen when he took over, and he at least got another year out of Tomas O'Shea. But a couple of other guys who've been around the block for a long time. Is it a bit extreme to say that this is going to have a fairly? This is maybe the start of the decline now for the Kerry football team. Well, we've been talking about the decline of Kerry football team for quite a while now. To be honest, it hasn't really materialised. Uh, I think you know the one thing that that really hurt Kerry this year was that they didn't have the strength and depth. So losing players of the calibre to Malmesbury, you know, you can't afford to do that at any stage. But uh, the one thing I would say about it is that it's an opportunity for some of those young fellas to come up and, and sort of prove themselves. Uh, I, I never have heard of the phrase of Kerry being in transition because they always seem to have enough players to be able to challenge right up there at the top. But they do need the influx now of the of the decent number 21 team that's had this past couple of years. Uh, there's a couple of boys on the fringes there who, who probably can step it up. Uh the only way I would worry, I suppose, about Kerry is is, is physically that they don't have uh, somebody who who is capable of of putting it up to the likes of the Dubs and Mayo and these teams physically, uh, and that really hasn't worried them in the past. But losing the likes of Tomas O'Shea, who you know who was who was quite adept at, at playing football, but also quite adept, you know, if if it was put up to him physically, you know, he could handle that. And, that would be, I suppose, the one worry that yeah. most even for tomorrow's will have. It's interesting. I remember speaking to Paul Galvin on this a uh, couple of years back, and he was making the point that, that he doesn't feel that there, there is enough done. Um, now, maybe this has changed in a couple of years since, but at the time we were speaking that maybe because Kerry have traditionally produced such good footballers that there hasn't been maybe the same 
amount of uh, effort put into physical development of guys at 15, 16, 17 years of age as there have been in other counties, maybe by necessity, like say, of your own county and others, had to find a different way of doing things. Is that something that it, you, you just have to be aware of? Kerry, you're so good, produce so many good footballers, football's so big in the county that there can be a fear that, you know, the, another small Soche will come along when actually that they don't really come along that often. Yeah, and I remember actually hearing Paul Gavin speaking about that and saying that, you know, in, on previous occasions, in previous years, you know, the fact that they were, I suppose, more skillful and, I suppose, had better footballers than everybody else was enough. It's no longer enough now. They still have a huge amount of talent and they have a huge amount of talent coming through. And I think that's the problem. I think in four or five years they'll be fine because they've really honed in on the with the with the 12s, 14s, sort of 16s. But, you know, the players who are going to be coming through for Kerry in the next couple of years... You know, are still playing catch up as far as I'm concerned because they've really only, you know, started really, uh, you know, uh, at, as I say, at 12, 14, 16. They've really only started homing in on this sort of thing this past couple of years when they've seen how far ahead that other teams were getting. And, uh, you know, as a result of that, you know, they've fallen short in a couple of those, a couple of. Uh, a couple of minor championships, a couple of uh, under twenty one championships, and and just purely as a result of maybe not being as well developed at that stage. I remember, in particular, I think a couple of defeats to the Tipperary minor team, who are physical, uh, who had put a huge amount of work in with these guys at at underage, uh, hugely physically developed, and, and also could could play ball. So. It's no longer enough that you're able to play a ball, but you have to be, you know, physically able to take the hits, and not only that, but physically fit to to, to last the season and and be uh, to have all that strength, conditioning, prehab, rehab, all that sort of stuff done, you know, in order to, as I say, get through what is it, with club and county a very tough season now. But I think that's something that that is going to hurt them for the next while. But I think in three or four years, you'll find that. They're probably, you know, as adept as, as, as everybody else now at this stage. All right, we'll leave it there, Oshin. Great stuff. Always good to talk to you. I didn't want to bring up the sore point with Oshin McConville there, and that was what we were talking about earlier on, Cullum Cooper's penalty. Because up until that point in second captain's live, the only score of a penalty kick had been Oshin McConville. And he was he was jealously guarding oh, that record. more than that, Murphy. It was like the uh, Miami Dolphins 1973 undefeated team. You yeah. know they have a party every season when a team Champagne loses. Champagne flying every time. They literally do. Loses. Actually, have yeah. go, get together and have a party when it turns out they're still the only undefeated team. Oshin McConville, I don't know what, what sort of parties he was having, but he was a happy man up until last night. Just opens, you know, opens a can of beer when he's sitting down uh, just watching it every, every Wednesday night. Two out of eight world. is... It's actually not a great conversion. Well, or it's an excellent record if you're Shane Kern. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I, I think that's how Shane Kern is looking at it. Actually, how many saves? Well, he did though. save. He saves a few, all right. Yeah. I mean, Jason Sherlock actually missed. Richie, Richie, Richie missed. missed. Jared Brennan missed. Very unluckily. Yeah. Well, no, yeah, Shane Kern saved that. Yeah, but the stewards inquiry about Jared Brennan's penalty. I think actually the Shane Kern saved that. Yeah, I think he did. Did it not whack up off the mat? No, I think, Are we I think talking wha- too much about these penalties? Well, Shane perhaps, Curran, perhaps. even the ones he didn't save, he basically did save them yeah, for exactly. his intimidating yeah. goalkeeping type presence. If Joe Hart had a bit of the Shane Curran's about him, Ken, well, exactly. might be a half decent goalkeeper. That's it from us. Thanks, Murph. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Owen. Thanks, Ken. Thank Thanks, you, Ken. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. We'll see you a little bit later for Second Captain's Football. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. 
Isaac Quainall, Tom Stewart. Now that KO has 4K, people will see every detail. I better wash my hair. Oh, I'll book in a spray tan. Maybe a manicure? I'm shining up my tats. Experience amazing detail with 4K. Now on KO.